You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, co-founder and CEO of Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. Listen to our podcast to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Listen to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Listen to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Tony Huang is the co-founder and CEO of Possible Finance, a consumer fintech company focused on improving the financial health of lower-income Americans. Since 2019, Possible has provided small dollar installment loans to over 500,000 Americans to help them cover emergency expenses and build credit history. Recently, Possible announced the Possible Card, an unsecured credit card without interest fees or late fees ever just one flat monthly fee. They designed this product so that they never make money from customers being stuck in vicious debt cycles, which is unfortunately all too common for subprime credit card holders. Possible's lead investors are Union Square, Euclidean Capital, Canvas Ventures, and Unlock Ventures. Prior to founding Possible, Tony and his co-founders collectively spent 26 years building body cameras for cops. Possible is a fully distributed company with team members all across the globe. And Tony has spent the past 18 months as a digital nomad living in various cities across the country. They've raised 157 million in equity and debt, about 90 employees, according to LinkedIn. And he talks about how within two weeks of announcing the new credit card product, they have over 175,000 people on the wait list. Very impressive. We talk about trade-offs between short-term profits and long-term mission product design with mission in mind, his personal journey, and the consumer debt market in the U.S., along with lots of other things. So please stay tuned. Tony, thanks so much for coming on Startups for Good. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Miles. Uh, It's long overdue. Yeah, wonderful to be getting into things here. Let's start with why do payday loans cost so much? You know, that's a great question. When we first started, and we didn't come from consumer financial services in our backgrounds, we were asking ourselves the same question. Now, why are things so expensive for lower income individuals in this country? And the reality is it's very expensive to be poor. And that's because there's a ton of challenges with bigger banks and financial institutions serving lower income individuals, whether it's from a risk perspective or a government policy perspective. So they really stay away from this category of customers. And, and there's an alternative financial services industry um, that exists. And you know, sometimes that industry causes a lot of negative externalities for our society and making things very expensive. In our opinion, it was really broken from a perspective of not helping customers succeed long-term. You know, these products are supposed to be on-ramps to the traditional financial system. For the 91 million Americans who are you know, really locked out of the traditional financial services industry because of their low credit scores or non-existent credit scores. But instead of being on-ramps, you know, these products like payday loans or overdraft fees or some of these new payroll advance apps out there, they're not on-ramps. They really become debt cycles and debt traps. And you know, that's a major problem. And that's also one of the reasons why they're so expensive. It's because people keep on getting stuck on using these products over and over again without being able to qualify for something better long-term. So is that because lending to people who don't have money is risky? It's definitely risky. And you know, there's, a, there's a market dynamic to this where you just simply cannot charge prime rates if you're lending to a deep subprime or subprime population. There are certain characteristics of you know, just cost of running the business. That's certainly true. But there's also this phenomenon where you know, within payday lending, you have lots of good customers heavily, heavily subsidizing lots of bad customers who end up defaulting. And therefore, lenders have to charge the same high rates for everyone. So, so that's a phenomenon that, that we noticed. And we kind of felt like the individuals who are defaulting, there are probably characteristics or data sets you can look at to uh, separate them out from the customers who have a willingness and ability to repay. And if you can separate that risk out, you can offer 
a lower cost to this customer demographic. So, so that's what we have tried to do here at Possible. And you know, I think a lot of really good fintech companies really try to stratify that risk better in order to provide a lower cost product and savings to uh, customers who deserve something better. So with better data and better technology, you're able to make more informed decisions that give cheaper prices to those customers that should get a loan? That's right. That's right. So with, with our product, actually, let's think about you know, traditional payday loans. You, know, you can, let's say, Miles, you're in California, you go into a brick and mortar payday loan store in San Francisco, and you say, hey, my name is Miles. I like a loan. And they say, great, here's, you know, we want to see your pay stub and your ID. And that's pretty much it. There's not a lot of sophisticated work to determine who you are and, you know, your risk profile, your ability to repay. But with Possible and with a number of new age technology providers, simply, you know, not just us, we link directly with the customer's existing bank accounts and additional financial information and use our machine learning models to, to do decisioning, which, which turns out to be a lot more accurate in separating customers who will repay and those who have a high propensity for defaulting. And that allows us to offer a better rate to the customers that we are able to serve while also protecting those customers who are probably too ahead of their skis in terms of taking on debt. And additional debt is, is not a good thing for that consumer either. And this is why ability to repay is such an important factor in lending. The CFPB in 2017, I believe, had tried to introduce sweeping legislative changes around the payday lending industry. And one of the major issues they pushed for was all lenders have to conduct ability to repay testing. You, you know, you, it's a pretty simple concept. You have to know, you have to do some work as a lender to determine whether your customer is going to pay back or not, and has the ability to repay. And we do that um, as a company. In fact, we even advocated for that 2017 CFPB rule around ability to repay. We think it's just the right thing to do for consumers. Um, unfortunately, that bill was never implemented. And today, ability to repay is still somewhat of a novel approach to underwriting risk within the kind of payday space. So so there's a lot of intricacies, but you know, when we looked at this as complete outsiders, we actually asked ourselves, should short-term credit even exist in our society? If we could maybe snap a finger and you know, all short-term credit disappears, would society be better off or worse off? And we kind of came to this first principles conclusion after talking to hundreds of customers who are using these products, consumer advocates, and other leading researchers in the space. And we kind of came to the conclusion, credit needs to exist, even for this pocket of customers. It just needs to be done in the right way. And that's what we've tried to do here at Possible. It is interesting to me that microfinance is trumpeted as an amazing thing for the world and helpful, particularly overseas. And you see Nobel Prizes being won. And then within the mm -hmm. US, this low dollar unsecured credit is considered a no-go zone or you know, has particular regulatory and reputational risks. Why do you think that is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting phenomenon. When we first started, we read all of the same books you know, about the, the wonders of microcredit, and we were, we were captivated by that idea. But as you know, people living in America and, and our team, for whatever reason, we, we felt like, gosh, that's an amazing innovation microcredit that's, that's helping tons of communities all across the world, but we need help right here at home. You know, we want to improve America and the lower income communities here in our country and our society. And you're absolutely right. A microcredit product in a developing country, the terms could be nearly identical to a payday loan, actually. And yet one's called microcredit and one's called payday lending with very different uh, connotations and headline risk and reputation risk. I think it's because in the US, there's been a history of robust financial services industry. And also, there's just these regulatory hurdles, uh, whether you agree with them or not, that have really entrenched the belief in you know, what is affordable and what isn't solely based on the calculation of an APR, an annual percentage rate. 
And, and that's really a, that's a blunt instrument to assess affordability, um, in our opinion, and, and not just our opinion, the opinions of a lot of other experts uh, in the space. So when you use that blunt instrument here in the U.S., you tend to draw some really fine lines without a lot of nuance in what is good for consumers and what isn't. And I think that's the effect that uh, has caused this, this difference in understanding. Gotcha. You mentioned the debt cycle. And I think that's interesting because on the flip side, most businesses would want to have repeat customers. But in this category, maybe you don't. How do you think about that? Yeah, yeah. So the average payday loan customer in this country takes out eight payday loans each year. That's the average. There are many customers that frequently use payday loans today that are taken out 10, 12, 15, 20 payday loans in a given year. And the reality is they're stuck in a debt cycle. And roughly half of all payday loan customers are actually stuck in a debt cycle, meaning they're constantly reborrowing as soon as they repay. And it's the same thing that we've seen in overdraft fees, which is just a way of short-term borrowing from lower-income consumers. In fact, a lot of customers that we've seen use an overdraft fee and a small dollar loan product almost interchangeably. So overdraft is just a, an illegal loan that banks are able to provide you at 17,000% APR. Uh, if you do the math on you know, the average dollar size of a, a transaction that triggered an overdraft fee versus the, the ticket size of the overdraft fee, which is usually around $34. And then the, you know, these new payroll advance apps that are on the market as well, they're also single payment products that do cause these debt cycles. And certainly, from a business perspective, you will look at this and say, this is exactly what the lenders wanted. This is how they make money. And, and that's something we found as well. When we looked at this, traditional payday lenders actually had no incentive to help their customers out of this debt cycle. In fact, the business model is, how do we captivate this audience and, and not let them go or let them graduate? Because that's really how they make money. You know, they, they, payday lenders need their customers to take out eight loans on average in order to just break even. So, so we looked at that and, and felt like there needs to be a, a better alignment with the customer's long-term interests. And that's one of the reasons why we decided to build initially the possible loan product is to help create this on-ramp from customers who don't have good credit and can't qualify for anything better and give them the ability to use a product that helps them build an established credit history without relying on the FICO or Vantage credit score or credit bureau files, which we don't do today. So it does not check credit history for approval, but reports into the credit bureaus to establish credit history. And that's a really key point. And then to help customers catch their breath. So it becomes this really uh, an on-ramp to help them eventually qualify for better financial products and have a better financial future in the long run. And while that is, in some people's eyes, counterintuitive from a business perspective, they say, Tony, aren't you just graduating all of your best customers? Well, that's kind of the point. You know, We are a startup for good uh, as the theme of this podcast. We started this business in order to have maximum societal impact. And if we're helping as many customers achieve their overall financial journeys, health, and a better life, then I would say we've succeeded as a business. And you know, we, we try really hard here at Possible to be intellectually honest about where the economic alignment of incentives are between us and our customers, us and our investors, us and our team, and et cetera, uh, because we think that those alignment factors or misalignments do a lot to drive the overall outcome uh, for consumers and for the business. Thank you for that. Are you willing to say more about those trade-offs and how you manage them, specific choices you've made for the mission in how you approach strategy and product? Yeah, yeah, happy to. And we just recently announced the latest product from Possible, the Possible Card. And maybe it's best if I just share kind of our journey to realizing why we had to build the Possible Card. You know, so, so we initially started as just completely industry outsiders. And you know, we waited outside payday loan source to talk to customers 
to understand their pain points because we were a team that wanted to solve the biggest challenges for lower income communities here, right here in the US. And, and it became apparent when you go into a lower income community and, and there are no bank branches. Instead, there's you know, a payday loan store, a pawn shop, a title lending store, another pawn shop, every other block. And you realize this is a massive, massive problem and also an opportunity to really create an impact. So, so that's where we started. And we, we originally built this on-ramp, a true on-ramp for millions of Americans who are just stuck and unable to qualify for a better financial future. And the possible loan is, is this you know, no credit check for approval uh, for installment micro loan that helps people build credit history. So that was our core business. And we were kind of expanding state by state. And you know, about a year and a half ago, the core business, the possible loan product was growing very quickly. And we looked at this business and we kind of took a look under the hood. And what we realized was there was a very small percentage of customers, um, like 3% of all possible customers were taking out eight or more loans with possible over the course of multiple years, not just in one year, but that, that didn't make us feel very good. You know, while these customers were great for profits and revenue growth, you know, they, they're very good customers that would always repay. If we're being intellectually honest, they were just stuck in another debt cycle with us, albeit it's a way less aggressive debt cycle and way less costly debt cycle than an overdraft debt cycle or a payday loan debt cycle. It's still a debt cycle. And we did not feel good about that from a mission perspective, despite the, the amazing things it did for our business from a you know, metrics perspective. And so we got very serious as a team about thinking, how can we get these customers that are really stuck on our on-ramp? How do we get them off? And the initial thinking was, well, maybe we can refer them to upstream credit providers. Maybe say we can vouch for our customers and we can refer them to say the likes of a Capital One for a credit card. The customer that we have, we've helped them build credit history or establish credit history. So now Credit One is more likely or Capital One is more likely to approve them. So we'll maybe refer them at the right moment and Capital One say will pay us a referral fee and uh, we graduate that customer. They never see possible again. They become you know, Capital One's customer. Everybody's happy. It's kind of a credit karma or nerd wallet business model where you build out this marketplace. So that was the idea initially. And we said, great, let's go build that and really help these customers graduate from the possible loan product. As complete industry outsiders, again, we started learning about the credit card industry with the goal of trying to find the most consumer-friendly credit card products that we can feel good referring our existing customers to. But what we quickly realized was that the consumer subprime credit card industry looks and works a lot like the payday lending industry that we had just spent years trying to reinvent. The reality is that credit card companies and payday lenders both intentionally extend credit to vulnerable people, knowing that they're not going to pay back. There's almost an expectation of, we give you the money and we know that you're probably going to end up in a cycle of debt. And that's how they make money. So this $100 billion a year consumer credit card industry in the US, you have transactors and revolvers. Transactors, they never carry a balance. They're just you know, paying off their balance every month. Revolvers carry a balance on their card every single month. And revolvers end up paying interest charges that are compounding over time and late fees and penalty fees. And when we looked at the whole industry, we quickly realized that the vast majority, over 80% of the revenue seems to be coming from revolvers. So the economic incentive for the credit card industry as a whole is how do we get a subprime American in debt and then keep them in debt for as long as we can, so long as they don't default on us, because that's how these companies make money. And that just felt like a really big misalignment of incentives to us between consumers and the existing financial services companies out there today. So we quickly realized, you know, we cannot just help our customers out of one debt cycle just to refer them into another debt cycle, the credit card debt cycle. No matter how much the credit card companies are willing to pay us, 
you know, for a referral fee. We just didn't feel good about that business model. And eventually we, we came to the realization that the credit card industry is just so broken for lower income Americans that it's worth for us to build something completely from scratch. Um, and that's why we, we introduced the possible card. The possible card is the first no interest or late fees ever credit card designed specifically for lower income individuals. And it's not an introductory offer of 0% APR. It's just, we have no APR forever on this card. We, in fact, we don't want to be in a position where we make money from customers who are stuck in that credit card debt cycle. So the possible card is just a flat monthly fee. You can think of it as you know, your Spotify account or Netflix account or Amazon Prime. It's just a fixed monthly fee. You get access to a card and also a pool of unsecured credit. So it's not a secured product. You don't have to put money down. And like 75% of Americans who are paycheck to paycheck, living paycheck to paycheck, you don't have money to spare to put aside just to build credit history. So it's a product that gives you money to help cover expenses. But because we don't make money from you being stuck in debt, we are now economically incentivized to help you stay out of debt, which is almost this new idea if you look at any credit card company. That's just simply not how they make money and how they're economically incentivized. We are economically incentivized to help you keep more of your hard-earned money and to help you pay down your debt at all times rather than rack up a debt. And we're going to reward you for paying down your debt and incentivize you to pay down your debt and build healthy long-term financial habits. So that long-term alignment between us and our interests and the customer's interests is the major differentiator between the possible card and any existing credit card out there today. And that's something that, that's, that's really exciting for us is we hope that all of our possible loan customers will you know, eventually graduate into the possible card rather than to fall into a credit card debt cycle uh, with anyone in the existing industry. Wow. So what you're saying is they pay a fixed fee and then they can borrow no matter how much they're borrowing, they're still paying that same fee. That's right. I mean, these cards are lower limit cards designed for subprime and deep subprime individuals. They're really an extension of serving our existing customers who are using the possible loan over and over and over again. And, and we look at that and we said, that's just not the right way to use our loan. Most possible loan customers are able to use this on-ramp, improve their financial lives, improve their credit score, and eventually get off. But for the subset that's getting stuck, we, would, we just want to offer them a much better product that's aligned with their long-term incentives and that is lower cost for them on a month-to-month -month basis. So that's the possible card that we're offering them. So the credit limits, there's a $400 card and there's an $800 card. And over time, these credit limits will go up with, with positive behavior from the customer. But you know, these aren't unlimited $20,000, $30,000 you know, Chase Sapphire Reserve type of credit cards that higher income consumers would ever want to use. When I ran a Neobank, we had deposit products and we did market for a time a fixed fee, fixed monthly fee deposit product that got you access to ATMs and other transaction fees that you might otherwise have to pay. I found that in that environment on the deposit side, customers weren't necessarily interested because everyone thought they wouldn't be the ones to pay the fees. Hmm. What are you seeing in this case? Yeah, well, we're seeing pretty incredible demand for the current product today for the possible card. And I think there are some, some differences between debit and, and credit. Uh, there is just a, a pretty highly associated cost to accessing credit for our customer base today. They're already paying an exorbitant amount of money to access credit, whether it's an, a payday loan, a bank overdraft fee, payroll advance apps, or other subprime credit cards, which end up costing them a lot of money in late fees, penalty fees, compounding interest charges. So we've seen customers react to the possible card and the pricing as this is almost too good to be true. And 
uh, we announced the possible card two weeks ago publicly. We now have over 175,000 people that have signed up on our wait list to receive the possible card. So there's, there's clearly a lot of demand on the market for this product. And, and I think that's because individuals, consumers that have to use existing high APR credit cards from the existing credit card companies, or if they're just scared by credit cards, even if they may not be able to articulate exactly where the economic misalignment and incentives are between them and these credit card companies, the consumers can feel that there's just something off, that credit card companies don't have their best interests at heart, and that they're being nickel and dimed and being deceived, and, and it just doesn't feel good for millions of Americans. And, and they also feel like credit cards are really confusing and complicated in terms of the fees. You know, uh, if you look at a credit card fee structure, there are just so many ways that you can get dinged that it's, it's just, even for me, as someone who works in the industry, it's, it's hard sometimes to understand how my credit card actually works. What's my statement balance versus what's my full balance? When I make a payment, why do I still have all this money on my credit card? I just made a payment. So for the average American, what we're doing is demystifying the credit card experience and making it a lot more simple and approachable. And that's been received very favorably. And, and the simplicity of this is there are no gimmicks, there are no gotcha. It's, it's just a flat monthly fee that you pay. It's a fixed monthly fee. It doesn't go up or down. And it has this predictability to it. And more importantly, you know exactly how much you're going to be paying in total fees when you use this product versus when you use a credit card, you don't really know how much fees you're actually going to pay at the end of the day. And that's what our customers constantly describe their existing credit card experiences. So when we describe to them, you know, hey, what if we could build a card that just had one fee for you and we simplified everything and, you know, we had all these other great features that help you pay on time, build credit history and help you avoid being stuck in debt. The reception from the customer base when we were initially doing our research was was overwhelmingly positive, and that gave us the confidence to, to move forward and invest a lot of our engineering and development resources into building the possible card and launching the possible card over the last 12 months. Exciting, and congratulations. That's a wonderful response to see from customers. Now, you've talked a lot about the mission on this podcast, and you're very public about it. Otherwise, I can imagine VCs with a long-term orientation, understanding how that builds brand and how that will result in a positive financial outcome for them. I think of debt investors as being more focused on the bottom line because they're not gonna necessarily see the payoff from that brand building. Has that been your experience? What's it like talking with debt investors about the company and the mission? Well, we definitely wear our mission on our sleeves and we are definitely not shy about sharing that with debt investors, equity investors, potential hires, our customers. Um, so you're absolutely right there. And uh, I'll come back to the, the debt investors and how we message this. But just to, to go back to, you know, why are we doing this in the first place? I think it's important to understand, to understand that because we are very transparent about who we are and why do we exist with all of our partners. You know, we... At its core, I think we just really believe in this idea of using a sustainable business model as a conduit for societal impact. And, and the reason we have that belief to go all the way back is, I think, through my own experiences. You know, I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and went to the Martin Luther King Jr. Elementary School in Cambridge. And my parents were, you know, middle class. My Parents were, you know, research scientists and and worked in labs. And you know, my dad eventually did a startup, so he was an entrepreneur. Although it never really commercialized anything, so it was uh, it paid for the bills. But um, you know, he had to eventually shut it down after many many years without much success. So that process gave me enough exposure to the business world where I became interested in it. But I was also really interested in having impact through my work. And I eventually uh, got to attend Harvard for my undergrad, which was three blocks away from my elementary school. The Martin Luther King, the Martin Luther King Jr. Elementary School in Cambridge and Harvard were 
despite their physical proximity to one another, somewhat worlds apart from a socioeconomic background statuses of, of the, the students. And I think I was one of the few kids to really ever make that, that leap from MLK to, to Harvard, despite it being so close in proximity. And it just felt like a really important opportunity for me personally to, you know, while I was in college, to walk down the street and go back to my alma mater and uh, volunteer and, and be an example. You know, if I can make it, so can these other kids in my neighborhood, and they can make this jump too. So I ended up falling in love with teaching. And, you know, no surprise there, actually, my whole family are, you know, lines of teachers going back many generations. So, so I fell in love with teaching and ended up running a lot of the nonprofits on campus that were focused on education. You know, I'm studying developmental psychology. I was really preparing myself to, to be in the nonprofit and teaching space. And then I stumbled into a social enterprise conference on campus and got to meet some really amazing founders who are building businesses that not only were really successful, they were having massive social impact as well through the business as a conduit to have that social impact. And, and this was during a time where I felt, I think when I was working at a few nonprofits and, and running them and really feeling like, gosh, these nonprofits, they're, they're so hard to scale. There's not a lot of sustainability to the budgeting and there's just a lot of inherent challenges to actually being able to help as many people as I really wanted to through the nonprofit world. Meanwhile, a sustainable business model, as it seems, could be leveraged to create massive impact very quickly and do it in a very sustainable manner and help millions of people all across the country and all across the world. So I developed this deep personal thesis of using a sustainable business model as a way for me and for my team to have massive societal impact in a positive way. And I ended up not becoming a teacher. Uh, that experience derailed my, my teaching a nonprofit career. And instead, I joined a civic technology that was building body cameras for cops. The team that I, that I ended up joining, you know, before I joined, they actually pioneered the idea itself of let's put a camera on every police officer to record interactions with the public. And you know, if you've seen a police officer wear a body camera or any footage of police body cameras on the evening news, YouTube or Facebook, as I'm sure we all have over the last 24 months, you've seen my team's work. There's you know, one company behind all of that. You know, we weren't the founders of that company, but that, that, that company experience left a, a pretty deep impression on, on us, on the team at Possible, that you can have, it kind of affirmed our belief that you can have massive impact through a sustainable business model. So when we, we were looking to get something started, we, you know, we didn't come from consumer financial services, but we always had this North Star of whatever it is we did, it's had to have just as big, if not a bigger societal impact as we've had in the past. And that's our North Star and how we measure our success and how you know, we want to feel our own success. So, so it's selfish, you know, that we're just chasing what makes us feel fulfilled. But, but I think that, you know, being mission oriented and wanting to have a purpose through your work is the most fulfilling thing you can possibly do. And that's what allows us to, to work so incredibly hard and to be gritty and to tackle all of these challenges. And it allows us to recruit and retain really amazing team members and find really amazing partners. So, you know, we're, we're very upfront about all of this with our equity investors and our debt investors. And as you know, Miles, so much of, of fundraising is just a kind of a selection filtering process where you have to find the, the partners, the capital providers who already see eye to eye with you in terms of their worldly view. And you're not really going to convince someone who doesn't believe in this foundational view of you can do good and do well at the same time as a business. If, if an investor doesn't believe in that, they're just never going to invest in us. But we've had a lot of success in finding equity and debt capital partners that do have that shared belief. And we all believe that the right way to build a financial services company is to be very long-term oriented 
with how we serve our customers and how we build our brand, how we align economic incentives. And that is the right long-term strategy if we're looking 10, 15, 20, 30 years out. And we've been fortunate enough to find both equity and debt investors who have that long time horizon that matches our perspective and want to go the distance with us. That's great. So you really haven't seen a difference, it sounds like, between the equity and debt investor perspective. And thank you for sharing more of your personal story and how you got on the journey. I'd love to hear more about the team that you met at Axon and how you decided to work together and that journey from, okay, we want to work together to we have an idea on what we're working on. Yeah, yeah, happy to share. So, so you know, myself and my co-founders, Tyler and Prasad, were all early team members at a company called Axon, this company that made you know, body camera technology for police, as well as other police software and hardware devices. I was an early product manager on the kind of technology side, the software side of the business. And my two co-founders, Tyler and Prasad, were actually the very first two software hires for the business overall. And they architected a lot of the foundations for what is now a billion dollar publicly traded SaaS business. And collectively, the three of us have spent 26 years building body cameras for cops. We'd been in the trenches together, you know, through lots of ups and downs, you know, lots of uh, setbacks and, and, and successes, but it was, it was an incredible journey that helped us build a lot of trust with one another. Like we knew we could rely on each other when time got tough. We knew how we reacted to challenges, which was, you know, let's stay calm, let's get through it together. Whatever came our way, we were confident that we can weather that as, as a team. And Tyler and Prasad are two of the grittiest people I've ever met. So, so I immediately, you know, was drawn to them while we were colleagues and, you know, over the years working together, just not only based on my own experiences, but based on the respect that others had for Tyler and Prasad and, and the way that they showed up as servant leaders. It just, it just really made me want to work together with them. So, you know, the company, uh, our previous company kept on growing and it was becoming a huge success. And we felt like that mission was coming to a completion at some point towards the, the end of 2017. You know, collectively, we'd been there for 26 years, so it was, it was kind of time as well to do something new. So we actually got together and started thinking about different product ideas. So we did not start with a problem that we wanted to solve or a personal pain point, like many founders. We actually just had a team that wanted to work together, that had a mutual respect for one another and just really wanted to collaborate on something. And we didn't know what, and, and you know, the, the honest truth was we had a list of, you know, a Google sheet of maybe a hundred different ideas across all different business sectors. And we were exploring a number of different ideas and the reality became pretty clear that, that our bar was, it had to have a pretty meaningful impact on lower income communities here in the U S we just couldn't as a team get very excited about you know, building enterprise SaaS software again, or, you know, selling ads online for Facebook or Google. So, so that kind of led us to look in a fairly narrow set of, of ideas and spaces and, and financial services became quite clear to us as the best way we can affect change. One of the reasons for that belief was, you know, we were looking for industries where there wasn't as much technology today. And the experience is fairly fragmented and there's a lot of active pain points that lower income individuals were feeling on a regular basis. We want to shine a light on some of these kind of backwards industries. And the more things are broken, the more impact, real world impact we can achieve as a team by, by tackling some of these issues. You know, we didn't want to optimize something to make it incrementally better. We really wanted to transform uh, something that was fundamentally broken and do it 10 times better and do it fundamentally differently. So that's how we kind of landed on disrupting the, the payday lending space, you know, which, which has not been easy. There's been a lot of unforeseen challenges over the years that we, I wish we knew about before we got into this, into this industry. But you know, what really drove us and kept us going was 
the impact that we were having on our customers. We felt like if we could, we could just build this, we would be helping the hundreds of customers we spoke to during our research and built a relationship with. On the flip side, if we did not go pursue this idea, we would really be walking away and turning our backs on the hundreds of customers that, that we talked to and build a relationship with. And, and we knew that they were suffering and why they were suffering and we could do something about it. And if we didn't, I think we wouldn't be able to live up with ourselves. So that's how we ended up, you know, jumping headfirst into this industry. And, you know, here we are uh, four and a half years later. And how did you pick FinTech or to go interview all these customers when you're thinking you want to have impact at the beginning, you want to work with this team, what other criteria did you use to decide what to research? I think the first thing was, you know, as a product person, we wanted to create value for our customers and for society overall. So the, the thinking was never, what can we do that could make money? Or what could we do that could build a really great high margin business? Or have a business that, you know, would have very sticky retention, things like that. Or leverage a certain technology, which, you know, we didn't really have as a team in the beginning. So our framework was, what are the biggest problems that we can identify that people were feeling you know, active pain points on a regular basis? And what were some industries that had really flawed customer experiences? So we looked at a number of industries, but when we started to explore consumer financial services, particularly for lower income individuals, it just became so clear after the first few conversations with customers that this is the most acute active pain point that we had stumbled upon. And, and I think, Miles, your question is also like, how did you go from body cameras to, to disrupting payday loans? Like, how did you make that leap even? How did you even get interested in, in financial services? So, so there was a, a few combinations of things, you know, through my own experiences, whether it's, it's the nonprofits I was running, teaching, my own upbringing or, you know, doing ride-alongs with police officers, which was a part of my job as a product manager. You know, I spent a decent amount of time in lower income communities all across the country. You know, when you do ride-alongs with police, you're not going to the nicest communities. You're a lot of times going to the lowest income communities across the country. And that gave me a lot of exposure to the challenges that lower income individuals had. You know, we would talk to a lot of these people you know, it's not a police officer's job is not busting criminals all day long. A lot of times they're just talking to people in the community, building relationships. And I got to witness that. I got to hear the challenges that, that a lot of people were having across the country. And it just became pretty clear that so many of these challenges were linked to not having the financial means. And simply if, they, if they, they, just, they just had access to a few hundred dollars, if they had access to financial literacy, they would potentially be avoiding, you know, going down a fairly bad path uh, that, you know, caused them to run in with, with law enforcement. That combined with just the lack of bank branches and all of these payday loan pawn shops that were on every other block, that left an impression and it, and it piqued my interest. So, we started just talking to, to customers by standing outside payday loan stores. And that got pretty painful, actually. You know, you, you can imagine it's kind of raining in Seattle. People are coming in and out of these payday loan stores. They don't want to talk to, to you, you know, when you're standing outside the street corner. A lot of these payday loan companies also did not want you around bothering their customers. So it was not a very efficient research process. And we actually realized at some point that, hey, Every brick and mortar payday loan store has a Yelp page. And on Yelp, you can actually go read their reviews and see whether a customer was there to get a payday loan or to just use Western Union, which are not the customers we actually want to talk to for research purposes. And you can kind of tell from their review whether they had a positive experience or a negative experience. So it turns out you can also direct message people on Yelp. That was a lot easier than standing outside payday loan stores in the rain. So we pivoted to sending out tens of thousands of direct messages to customers who had recently left a review on a payday loan store saying that they got a payday loan, both 
those that had a positive experience and a negative experience. And we, you know, told them who we are and why we wanted to learn about the space and what our intent was, which was to make this experience fundamentally better for you, the customer. And we had a lot of customers interested in, you know, just simply hopping on a phone call with us and giving us feedback. So that's how we got our first few dozen customer conversations that really validated that this is a space we are tackling for our team. And there's just a lot of challenges that we can help solve. That's very clever. I think customer discovery often relies on understanding where to find your customers when they'll be willing to talk. And that's a, a wonderful way to do it. May I ask you about your growth as a founder and CEO? How have you managed to keep getting better at your job? Yeah, you know, I think the, the most rewarding part of this journey for me has been this unexpected personal growth. You know, I didn't start the company to have personal growth. We started it to have societal impact. But through the roller coaster ride that's being a startup founder, as I'm sure you've experienced as well, and many of the listeners here uh, may, may know about, you know, you go through the highest highs and the lowest lows. And these experiences really challenge you in terms of truly understanding who you are as, as a, not a, just as a founder or a CEO, but really as a human being. And I think it's, it's really important to continue to grow and be honest about who you are, your strengths and your weaknesses and your emotions. So that growth mindset, I think, has served me really well. You know, we didn't know anything about financial services when we first started. In fact, we were laughed out of the room on a few phone calls by not understanding some really basic concepts you know, within, say, the regulated financial services space when we first started. But we had this, this appetite and this mindset for learning. It's really served our, our business well and served our team well. That's one of our cultural values. And, and I think for me personally, it's applied to my own individual development. I also work with a few executive coaches, and I've worked with a few executive coaches over the years. And, and that's really helped me reflect. So one thing, you know, I'll share, it's, it's a little bit personal, but I'm happy to share it is through coaching and through reflection, you know, I, I did have some, some dark times over the last four and a half years. I kind of realized at some point that I was being very hard on myself uh, as, a, as a CEO and just as a, a human being. And through conversations with my coach, I realized that the reason I was being so hard on myself is because I've always motivated myself through this fear of failure. I just did not want to fail at anything that I, I did in life. But failure and this fear of failure is, is kind of this negative emotion. And I eventually realized that that's just not a healthy way to motivate yourself. And and the initial thinking was, well, if you didn't, if I didn't have this fear of failure, maybe I won't have this competitive edge. That is what maybe made me successful or, or drives me to work so hard and outcompete others in, in the competition and outwork the competition. So if I lost this fear, maybe I wouldn't be as, maybe I wouldn't be me. But through these conversations with, with coaching, I eventually came to this realization that I don't actually need to motivate myself through a negative emotion. There's plenty of things, you know, our mission, our impact on a daily basis that we get to hear about on our customers. Just the, the fact that I want to see the world with our products and with a company like us exist for our customers, that is motivating enough. And that's today, that's what keeps me going. That's what gets me up at, you know, early in the morning to record a podcast. Uh, that's what drives me to work every day, every, you know, not every weekend we're working, but we'll do whatever it takes to see our vision succeed and to see our vision exist in this world. And, and changing kind of that personal motivation from a negative emotion to a positive emotion over the last few years has been a, just a phenomenal personal breakthrough and personal growth for me. And I think it also, you know, not only makes me a better CEO, it, it makes me a, a better human being. And I've started to realize that, you know, it's not just in business that I have this, 
negative emotion driving driving me. It's in a lot of other factors in my life as well. And I've been able to apply the same framework to just become, a, uh, I think, a happier person overall. And, you know, none of that would have happened if I hadn't taken the plunge to become, you know, a first-time founder four and a half years ago. Thank you so much for sharing that. Being able to tap into positive emotions rather than whipping yourself with the negative ones. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on. I think that's a great place to wrap up. Yeah, thank you, Miles. Well, I'm a big fan of what you've done and uh, you've been a trailblazer for mission-driven startups that do have this double bottom line and the orientation to have impact in the world. And I hope that more people in the technology industry and the financial services industry could, could just join us on this, on this cause of doing good by doing well. So I appreciate you spreading the message and having me come on your podcast today. Yeah, thank you. That's a wonderful rallying cry. Uh, where can people follow up online if they want to? Uh, you can find us at possiblefinance.com. Pretty straightforward and learn about us, who we are, and especially if you're interested in joining our team and uh, being a part of our mission, please do reach out. You can also find me on LinkedIn. Yeah, I'm always available to chat and meet with interesting people who have a like-minded orientation towards our mission. You know, I found over the years that your passion for our mission rather than your skill set and existing kind of expertise is what ultimately makes you successful uh, here at Within Possible. So we'd love to just meet anybody who has a shared passion for the space uh, so you can join us on that mission. Thank you so much. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player and please give us a rating and review. Startups for Good is brought to you by Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. If you're inspired today and want to reach out, please visit our website, purposebuilt.vc. Thank you.